Love it. Love it. Let's Ooh. hype machine. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, what's your baseline has always been known as a hype machine for all of our guests. <laughs> hey, 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 it's all hot air here. <laughs> wow, it's all hot. Well, that's only from you, Roland. I'm the one filling the balloon. <laughs> Welcome to the What's Your Baseline podcast. In this show, we talk about our experiences and lessons learned in enterprise architecture and business process management. What's Your Baseline is designed to be for everyone. Newbies who are just getting started with these topics, organizations who want to improve their EA and BPM groups and the value they get from it, as well as practitioners who want to get a different perspective and care about the discipline. Each episode will tackle different key topics, providing context, background, best practices, and stories from the road, inviting you to learn from our challenges and successes, and demonstrating key tools to help you set up your practice and get the most out of it. I'm your host, Roland Wold, and I'm joined today by my co-host, J.M. Erlinson. Hey, J.M., how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Roland. I just went for a really nice walk. It's November here in Canada, which means normally it's really snowy, but right now, it's just perfectly crisp. I got to tell you, the leaves are off the trees, but the walks are really good. You got to come up here someday. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know, but I, I tell you a dirty secret. It's also November here. Oh, the yeah. same month. Yeah, yeah it's incredible, you know. So uh, we're, we're recording this episode the day before Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. right? So uh, I think I'm looking forward to tomorrow for turkey and sofas and football and not doing anything. Except for Canadians have already had Thanksgiving. So we had our kick at it in October. And uh, tomorrow, what am I going to do? I'm just kidding. I'm going to be really working for my Canadian clients. But uh, <laughs> you'll have fun down there in the U.S. I hope so. I hope so. You know, and, and then I transform myself, you know, from the, the, the slim person that I am today to the person that you have in your imagination right now. Ooh. But speaking of which, to have that very, <laughs> very thin bridge walking over. Wow. Uh, we're talking about the topic of transformation today. Have you and heard about that? particularly about process inventory. And I got to tell you, boy, we have a real treat for all of our audience folks out there. We have a really great expert who's actually in, in the process of releasing a book on this to join us for today's podcast. I'd love to welcome our friend, Mr. Mike Shank. Mike, welcome to What's Your Baseline? Oh, Jay, I'm Roland. Thank you for having me on. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure. You're welcome. Mm. <laughs> well, we're happy to have you. And in particular, I think that this, you know, well, we don't always say what we're doing here right up front. We're pushing paper today because Mike's new book is coming out very shortly. Mike, what, what, what day is your book coming out? So if you look on Amazon, it says December 29th. I think they're being a little bit conservative. I hope it's more mid-December. Well, mid-December, Mike has a book coming out specifically on process inventory. You'll see a lot of links about this in the show notes, quick pitch for whatsyourbaseline.com. But you'll get a chance to find out more about how Mike sees an organization and how transformation, how digitization, how operational excellence and optimization come about with a great foundation. And I'm excited for today's conversation about that, Mike. I'm not sure if I missed the first two segments of our recording today, because typically the pitch is in the last one. So maybe <laughs> we start at square one, you know, uh, Mike. Talk a little bit about yourself. So who, who are you? What are you doing? What have you done in the past? Who are you as a person? So uh, that our audience gets to know you a little bit better. After JM created all that hype 
for for the next well, book. Well, I'll, I'll just say the hype could be in the beginning, the middle, and in the end. I, I don't think there's any any shortage of that. So uh, let, let me start from a professional uh, perspective first. So I spent 23 years of my career in consulting in the financial services industry at Accenture and EY, and also held leadership positions at Bank of America and Citibank. Uh, in my consulting days, I I worked on a lot of diverse set of client challenges from technology, risk, large transformation programs, and digital strategies. Um, at EY, I was the first to create the, the the first process excellence practice within the financial services industry. And then I moved on to Citibank, where I became head of process excellence for the for the U.S. retail bank. Uh, I left the corporate world earlier the, earlier this year to pursue my passion, which is to take the concept that I I I created and I detailed in the book and, and I'm sharing with you today called the process inventory framework. Uh, and I've started a process inventory advisors uh, uh, consulting company and we'll do training as well. Um, from a, a personal pers- perspective, I have two teenage children. Uh, I have one that's about to leave me next year going away to college. So it's a little bit bittersweet. Happy for her. Sad that she won't be around as much. Uh, I do. I am an avid runner. Try and do about two half marathons a year. Also, like to stay active through biking, weightlifting, skiing, hiking, uh, etc. Love traveling and love reading as well. Well, I can tell you out of my own experience, it's not that bad when the kids leave the house, you know. And if you do it right, they are four thousand miles away, like my two, and uh, you just have a new relationship with them. Yeah, and by yeah. the way, in all seriousness, it's nice to see them once in a while. Yes, yes. And, and mine, I live in North Carolina. My daughter just got accepted to Auburn, which is her leading candidate. So mm-hmm. she's going to go fairly far away, which is, is good oh, for her. Relatively nice. You'll give Roland, Roland has the experience because his kids left house, he has the ability to write books. So he's written what, three, four books now, Roland? Uh, <laughs> is, that a, is that a shadow of Roland here? Uh, good, I'm, I'm actually... I'm actually thinking about this and I applaud everyone who has the discipline to sit down at the desk and, and write for an hour or two for weeks and months on end, you know, Mm. because I can imagine, and I'm really curious, Mike, about that, uh, how much that takes, you know, I'm pretty sure you had, you had phases where you would just throw your laptop in the air and pretend not to catch it and and just move on. It's uh well I uh in uh kind of the if you ever heard the term burn the boats that's kind of what I set up I was going to write the book or else or else right mm-hmm. um so I had complete focus and complete dedication it was six months of just heads down Oof. and especially as I got towards the deadline when um, that my publishers like we need this done by the end of August I was. I was writing three or four hours a day, seven days a week, just, mm-hmm. and, and I say three or four hours a day, any more than that, and you're just mentally fried. So, you know, you have to pace yourself. Um, but it was a lot of work. It was intense. A lot of, a lot of research, a lot of reading, uh, a lot of thinking about it when I'm not writing. Yeah, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. But hey, maybe maybe you talk a little bit about um, the, the, the background story. What motivated you not to write the book, but not my meaning the book writing process, but the actual content in your book. So what, what triggered it? Yeah. So, so I mentioned, I, I worked on so many diverse challenges when I was at, at, at various clients and, and I was at a, a lot of them um, that I kept, kept looking at. Um, and I was first introduced to business architecture and the concept of capability models uh, about 13 years ago. And being a technologist, I was like, 
wow, this is like, I get to see what a whole business does on a, on a single sheet of paper. So I really fell in love with the idea as soon as I came upon it. Uh, but then, so then I dedicated myself within Ernst & Young to really developing this idea and, and taking it kind of a step further beyond capability maps to more understanding what each and every process an organization does. Because uh, organizations are a lot more complicated than cap- capability models or reference models show because there'll be a lot of organizations that do the same process. So I took this concept and I just really focused on how can I apply it to different situations, transformations and risks and technologies design and you name it, transformational change. And in every scenario, it worked and it worked fabulously. And, and I just felt driven that I had to get this on paper. And that's why I left the corporate world earlier this year. And, and as I said, burn the boats and made sure I, I got this on paper and got this published. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I do have a question uh, around definitions. So how do you define capability? Because um, we had, uh, we have a show about how we defined capabilities, right? We had another guest a couple of weeks ago talking about APQC and, and he says, oh yeah, high level is capabilities. So I, I'd be really curious about how you define capability, how is it different from process, how yep. is it different from other uh, terms? You mentioned reference content, right? Yep. Which I think in my mind are three complete different things. So so I'll define it by kind of reusing the term if I, if I can, but capabilities is the what your organization has the ability to do. So for instance, in a a reference model or capability model, I'll have payments and there'll be one box that says payments or there'll be account opening, one box to do that. But with process inventory, organizations are a lot more complex than that because, and I've been in, in large banks where numerous business units can have, can have has the ability to process a payment. But mm-hmm. each of those are implemented differently, have different risks, have different technologies. And all those intricate details matter when you're driving a transformation, have different owners. So that level of granularity is important. So when I talk about process inventory, it's really understanding everything an organization does in a organizational hier- uh, hierarchy aware way, whereas capability models are are agnostic of hierarchy. And both of those worlds combined become really powerful. Yeah, I typically like to say the capabilities are the what and the processes are the how. For sure. And, and there is definitely a, a relationship between the two. Absolutely. And, and process inventory is the is the what as well, and, and I'll explain some of that more. So I, I want to talk a little bit, before we get into the good, I want to talk about the bad, Mike, because there's a reason why we need this kind of approach. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that a lot of folks in the line have heard about digital transformation failure. And there's numerous examples. I remember I worked with an organization tangentially, not to be named, but they lost in the in the realm of hundreds of millions of dollars on a large multi-year failed digital transformation initiative. And there's a lot of blame to go around. There's a lot of finger pointing, but tell me why having this would change or actually the negative, why not having a process inventory, a process capability approach can put you down a bad path. Yeah, for sure. So, and to to go even a little bit deeper. So I found some stats that uh, whopping 70% of digital transformations fail. Uh, and the digital transformation marketplace is expected to be over $3 trillion by 2030. So it represents mm. a, a massive uh, risk, not only to those undergoing it, but those that are about to embark on it. 
Um, and, and, you know, the failures are obvious, but, but I think it's organizations are really complex. There's a lot of moving parts and doing something like a transformational program uh, obviously has a lot of, a lot of risks and, and failures manifest themselves in lack of the ability to, to have a shared vision, lack of engagement across the entire organization and people, poor transformation structure. Um, and, and, and while these are obvious, uh, solving them remains a, a challenge. So I, I believe the key to solving this is in something called alignment. Um, so in, in that we're in alignment, every element of a business should be working cohesively to fulfill the organization's purpose. And there's two parts of that. There's vertical alignment. So alignment from uh, from the, the C-suite down to the single contributor. And that involves harmonizing strategies, goals, knowledge, and activities all the way through that chain. And then there's horizontal alignment, which means effective collaboration and coordination across the various business and functional areas. So this is all about breaking down silos, fostering synergies, uh, and, and really getting all the teams ach- achieving uh, those common goals and objectives. So the, the key to getting alignment to me is, is getting to a common language. So everyone has their own different perspectives. So technology people talk in technology, risk people talk risk and controls, business people talk in their goals, et cetera. So you need to get to that common language so that, so that you could foster that, that communication and collaboration. Um, and, and to me, the only, the only candidate that does that, that I've seen, and I've thought about this a lot, is process. And and that that uh, common language has to have three characteristics. It has to be rooted in what the business does, so business oriented. It has to facilitate that cross functional collaboration, and it needs to represent different levels of granularity. So it's got to be useful from a senior leadership all the way, all the way down to to lower level staff. Um, ju- just to take it one more layer as an example. So so think about a single process. And, and all the coordination has to happen with it. So the strategy team would look at that process and say, is that pro- process strategically important? Important, And do I require additional investment in that process? A business team will look at it and say, I need to optimize that process for customer experience and profitability. Technology teams need to architect, build, and support technology to execute that process. Risk teams need to look at that process and say, what risks are involved? And how do I design and implement effective controls? Compliance teams want to ensure that they understand what are the relevant laws and regulations and what obligations are that under so that they could define effective controls. And then people leaders will want to make sure that their teams are equipped with appropriate training, procedures, and job aids. I could go on and on with like audit teams and data, et cetera. Yeah. But, but so, so it really makes sense when I talk about that single language. You need to give consistent definition to that process and have clear ownership. But if we zoom out a bit, there's hundreds or if not thousands or more processes that require this coordination uh, uh, in in the transformation. So it makes sense just to do definitions for all your processes so that you can do something like a a transformation. Yeah, I get a hot flashback to to my time with Accenture or the predecessor organization, (laughs) Anderson Consulting. um, And we had an ad about uh, an orchestra you know, and yeah. it was all the cacophony, you know, and then obviously you, you hired the firm and they made it sound pretty nice and everybody was playing the same song and, and whatnot. What what wonders me now is why 25 years later, it's still the same noise that we see <laughs> in organizations. <laughs> right. But hey, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird. You know, I think it's, it's people, you know, um, as always. But um, how does the, you, 
I think you made the case around, yes, we need that common language. We need that common process inventory. But I, I know you developed a, a whole framework around it. Can you talk a little bit about what the process inventory framework is and what it comprises of and yeah. what people get when they look at it? For sure. So there's there's um, two parts of it. There's the process modeling and then there's data integration. So process modeling, you guys already brought this up. There's a difference between the what an organization does and how they do it. So what is really the inventory comprehensively of every process? And the, the way you create that is to, to be comprehensive, you have to anchor to something that is comprehensive and complete, which is your organizational hierarchy. So you literally go from your, maybe not your CEO, but but your business units, and you just start interviewing and you go down that tree and say, what is it you do? What is it your teams do and what processes you execute? And as as you go along this, this chain, you document that. Uh, and then you ask people kind of going back up to approve it so that they could, they um, they formally attest that, yes, this is comprehensive, this is accurate. So now I have a list of all my processes. Now the how comes in when, when teams come in and say, I want process documentation. You could pull up the process inventory and say, help me scope it. Look at point to specific processes within this inventory. And then now I'm going to create my BPMEN 2.0 process models um, or your at a higher level, your value chains your, your customer journeys and your value streams, but they're all anchored to the same process inventory framework so that you can understand the context of, of all this information. From a, a data integration perspective, there's a lot of operational data locked away in various data stores. So you have your, your technology repository, you have your GRC risk repository, you have your people, you have your vendors, you have many of the stuff. So you want to extract that data and build libraries within your process tool so that when you're um, building your process in inventory and your, your process um, process models, you could take data from those, those libraries or those external data stores and associate it with the right spot within your process, within this whole kind of repository of operating information. Um, once you do that, now you have a very powerful repository that is essentially a single source of authoritative information for how your entire organization runs. Just think how powerful it is. I could just you know, now with a drop-down list say, what are all the processes that run on this system? What are all the, the processes with this risk type, et cetera, et cetera. Now it becomes a very powerful platform to drive your transformation, to get to operational excellence because everyone's working off of the same language as I mentioned and off the same page. Yeah, I wanted to loop back a little bit on something you said earlier because Anchoring your process inventory framework to your organizational structure, to me, sounds like a really great solution if you expect the people who are currently in their role and the structures that are currently delivering those capabilities to remain relevant. But you've seen as much as anyone else has seen massive organizational realignment. What do you do with your capabilities when your organization, your anchor, is pulled off the ground? How do you drift in the wind or how do you re-anchor it to something that's relevant because i see how you're like okay a new organization has to deliver capabilities differently but do the capabilities themselves change simply because the delivery mechanisms of the organization changes so well you mentioned two terms so there's there's and there's a capability model and there's the process inventory i think those both right live live together because i think there's a cross-reference because i do want to know 
what happens within each of my individual organizations, but I want to know, tell me all my process types. So you need to have some kind of intersection. But but the question you ask is a, is a great one, JM, because organizations change all the time. And this gets into, you need to, and I write about this in the book, the concept of a process COE, center of excellence, which there's a lot of responsibilities in there, but but one of them is to govern this data. And to do that, not only is there the original creation of the process inventory and getting all the attestations, but there's two mechanisms that are important to make maintain this, the relevance and the accuracy of this. One is the you should have periodic attestations. So every six months, years, whatever you define as your your uh, periodicity, you go back to that business and say, hey, let's let's review this again. Tell me what's changed and reattest it because it's important that this information remain relevant. The second one is if you integrate this into how you drive your organiz- your operational excellence programs, how you drive uh, your your uh, risk programs, how you drive everything that you do from an operations perspective, now you get the teams not only um, like coming to you and saying, can you make sure that this is right before I do my, say, my, my annual risk assessment? So if you, the more you integrate it into the backbone of how you run your operations, the easier it gets to maintain this data because everyone has, has a, a stake in the game. Yeah. I've actually seen something really interesting or I thought about something um, on how to address this in some cases, which is to install as part of your change management practice a closeout that syncs it up with a process inventory. Absolutely. You know, that's one of the things that you, you lose, like projects become sort of thrown to the wayside when you don't have a closeout procedure that reassigns ownership. But it sounds like, and this is something that, that it, it will take a lot of work, but you're offering a visibility that is incredibly valuable. So that work seems like the ROI is very high. Once you have a handle on things, now you can actually address organizational transformation. Because you Absolutely. actually know what you're going yeah. to change and how it's going to affect other things. Absolutely. And, and, and JM, I have a whole chapter dedicated in the book called uh, The Change Process, which mm. takes it from looking at if you have your entire process inventory laid out, now you could look, take a step back and say, what are the processes that are strategically important to me? And what are the processes that are that are maybe underperforming? So now I can intersect those two and say, my discretionary investment needs to get, get dedicated to those. Um, but then you could carry it forward. Now I set up a, a program with a charter and everything, and I get to define in the charter these are the specific process areas with the specific process owners. I get to trans. I get to take that and and create requirements from it. Testing, technology design. Um, I look at my my risk assessments through this. I really can take that whole thread through the change process, and then to your point, Jam. At the end of that, what should be produced is a new process inventory and a new uh, set of process models that reflect that change so that now going forward, uh, um, people driving change can benefit from that level of clarity going forward. So hmm, I'm a little bit off script here when I think about our little outline here. The, the, the thought that I have is, what does it take to stamp this up? I see the benefits, you know, I, I understand what JM said, you know, when you're, once you're done a project, you just bring it into the repository and you update your stuff. And yes, you look at it um, in regular times and whatnot. But if I'm a new organization who doesn't have anything, right, how much does it take me to stand this up from a content perspective? And obviously, we're going to talk about the how in, in the second part. But what are your experience with that? 
So, so I think the first first part of that is you need to be very clear on why. Why mm-hmm. are you doing this? I I lay out a lot of concepts in the book, and I think any new organization, I don't think you could get started on this day one. It would take a while for you to build it. So make sure you're clear on why you're doing this, um, and then build a roadmap which has success points that you could prove and then build on. Um, but but I think understanding the full vision is important so that you can build this to, in a scalable way. Um, I, I think the the next part is you have to build a process CUE, as I mentioned. You have to have mm-hmm. a centralized team that creates and maintains your standards, uh, governs these assets, main, maintains the tool and the data. Um, and and, and um, with something like this, there's so much data and there's so much modeling in here. It's got to be important to recognize that quality is king. Like if people look at your repository and say, this doesn't reflect reality, then your, your, your effort could be doomed, right? So I, I think it's, and I, you know, it's, it's important to lay out the why, think through what, you know, what your approach is to build this and then build all the infrastructure and then just get started creating your process inventory. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there, um, hmm, how do I say that? Is there some content that, that you can provide or that you can point people to how to get started with this? Because uh, I, I understand working uh, in this field for over 25 years, obviously, we all do it different. We're all special, you know, like, like our mom said, you're special, you know, and yeah. in all reality, no, we just buy stuff and we sell stuff and we market stuff and we produce stuff. So we all do the same in some form or fashion. Is there some points that you give uh, where organizations can get a head start on this or is it always custom and you must go through the painful process of interviewing people and, taking whatever napkins and scribbles and put that then into an electronic tool? Well, I, I think the the best thing I could offer is buy the book. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. Of course. Yes. Uh, so so the uh, I think because each organization is so unique, um, mm-hmm. we can't, it's not like a capability model where you could buy a APQC off the shelf and just say, this is what my reference is or my, what this is represents my organization. You're going to have to do the work. I just, unfortunately, I don't think there's any shortcuts to this. Um, but I do give a lot of, um, in the book, uh, ways to speed this up. So for mm-hmm. instance, when, when you're about to interview an organization, don't start with a blank sheet of paper. They have a bunch of documentation that can get your team started and, when you do these interviews, you're, you're starting with a very senior audience. So you want to be very cognizant of how valuable their time is. So make sure you do your homework, make sure you create a starting point and then have them adjust it as you kind of have the discussion. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I, I, I think there's, I have a ton more questions for you um, <laughs> because this first and foremost is fascinating. Um, I, I'm excited for when the book comes out. Uh, and, but most importantly, I, I think during the conversation we're hoping to equip our people with sort of the next steps for them to think about and as they go into you know making the justification to move towards a framework like this in the meantime we're going to we're going to take a brief break let people's brains cool down and ask a couple of questions that they can sort of ponder over while they listen to some nice music uh so so folks think about your organization how do you how do you see that how do you break that down where do you anchor your perspective to Um, And how do you communicate with the various stakeholders that you have to pull information from or serve with the, with the value you're creating and where have you seen struggles? How has that helped or maybe hurt your digital transformation from a practice or lack thereof? We'll leave you for a moment and come back with our second section 
another conversation with Mr. Mike Shank. I gotta get out of here. I gotta get out of here. And welcome back. Um, Mike, the, the big question, and I, I am impressed about how you described the benefits of the process inventory and uh, how good it does to organization. And you also uh, answered my curveball of what does it take to build it very well. So congratulations. Uh, I have another curveball for you. Uh, how do you sell the value prop of a process inventory to your stakeholders? So, so let me start with the the full vision for it, and it ties it, it anchors in operational excellence, which is really being great at everything you do to run your business. And there's a lot of things that that go into that, um, but there, there's four things, and there's these are four distinct chapters that I I lay out in the book. Um, but first is operational excellence. So how can you, and, and this is if you're if you're concerned with thing metrics like cost and effectiveness and how you run your business and have efficient processes. The second one is the change process, which we talked about. Um, there's a lot of dollars that go into driving change that is potentially lost. And if if that is a pain point for you, then this is a solution. The third is risk management. And I worked at a lot of organizations that have had, especially in, in financial services, that have risk and control issues. Um, in fact, one of my former employer, employers was under a consent order, which is a directive by the government that says, wow, your, your control environment is, is needs some upgrading, and this is a directive that you need to fix this. Uh, and then last is your, is your technology environment. So is your technology designed and architected in such a way to efficiently um, deliver on your business processes? And that gets into your total cost of ownership and the how complex your organization is. Do you have multiple systems uh, doing the same type of, of service, which in a, in a complex way that your organization doesn't know. So I laid out that way because, and, and I mentioned before that you need to, when starting an effort like this, you need to get very focused on your why. If you took all four of these and tried to deliver on everything at once, I think you would struggle, right? So what it yeah. really takes is you need to think about what is the context of your situation? What is your pain point and what do you want to focus on? And it really gets into how you're going to build your process COE, how you're going to start with this, and then what are the use cases you're going to you're going to deliver value from from this. Um, but but I think it's important to understand that full vision because if you have success at one or two of these things, you'll want to be able to to give yourself room to grow into these other ones. I can Ho hopefully that answers it. Yeah. It, it, it certainly does in my, in my mind. And I actually I want to talk specifically about a couple of use cases because. These are things that I'm, I'm thinking about a lot, and those are those are sort of a subset of the, the conditions that would would very much necessitate a process inventory framework, um, in a in a, a way that I think is really tangible. I'm thinking particularly about um, pivoting into a new business line or new 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 product new product capability delivery um, for the organization, and I'm thinking about M and A because this feels like for organizations who are looking to do acquisitions. Understanding what, where, how you're going to fit that acquired company For in sure. place will make a massive difference in your ability to deliver on your targets of efficiencies gained from an acquisition yep. or capability to integrate products and be able to deliver new services. And speaking about delivering new services, 
You know, if, if you don't know what you do right now, it's very hard for you to do something different well yep. because you're yep. building it from scratch. How much can you mine this like trove of information for good insights on what you can do and what you need to build that will help accelerate both of those scenarios of new, new pivots or M&A? Well, if, in understanding what you can do, I mean, it is a literally it's a comprehensive list of all your processes and you could take a step back and, and look at, um, you know, what is my business? What is the goals, whether it's revenue or, or whatnot, you're trying to to deliver as a business and then understand, OK, where are there opportunities to differentiate myself in the market? And what does that mean in terms of new processes and capabilities? And that gets into your strategy. So where do I need to make some investments to either build or upgrade processes through projects and, and whatnot? Um, post, post M&A integration, I think, is a extremely great use case. So if you're acquiring another company and you have clarity on what are the processes that I perform, and if you could do some due diligence through the M&A process to understand what are the processes that the target um, performs. Now, when I do that post M&A integration, now I could, because really it's a, it's a, when you do something like this, it's okay, resources from side A, resources from side B, which ones do I keep and how do I build the processes? And it becomes very easy and straightforward when you could say, here's a, process from A, process from B, here's the resources, here's what work, works best, and let me design the organization from that. Um, so I, I think it, it's, I've, I've used this, and just to throw out a couple examples, um, in my consulting days, I came in to do a merger of two uh, regional banks, and same situation. They had processes and resources on both sides. They had make some, made some decisions around this system we're going to keep, this team we're going to keep, this location we're going to keep, et cetera. But they, so we came in and we did a process inventory for the new organization, did detailed process flows, which showed not only what resources are used, but how they were going to use within the, within those processes. And it, then they used that information downstream to do better requirements, better design, better testing, et cetera, et cetera. Also did another one where it was a large multinational, uh, uh, life insurance company, where they were separating their U.S. retail uh, annuity business. So this annuity business made some decisions around what they wanted to stand up. But a lot, one of the key principles is they did did not want to inherit any of the the old organization's technology infrastructure. So they were essentially hmm. creating everything from scratch. So we use this framework to identify what processes were needed in the new organization, which mm-hmm. ones are priority, and then use that to do things like. Um, you know, build a new technology, get vendors to support it, et cetera. You talk a little bit about strategy here, and I know Roland is uh, Roland is really harping on this idea of strategy as the first thing that we we kind of choose to forget. And I, I'm sure that that one of the key pieces here is tying a process inventory framework to an organization's strategic goals and pillars, but. That feels like sometimes it's a loose fit. Where do you make it a tight fit? And how do you encourage that sort of strategic thinking and behavior, particularly with your executive stakeholders? So I think if you think about strategy, it's really your your vision, mission, uh, objective, strategies, tactics. I I may be saying that somewhat, but you have all these concepts that that are laying out there, which really you want, a strategist wants to think about what are the 
opportunities and threats within the marketplace? And what do I need to invest my money to differentiate myself? So now that you have kind of that process works independently and you want to think through what are the critical processes that are going to get you where you need to go from a strategy perspective, which ones are are underperforming that need investment, and then make sure through that that annual investment process that you're uh, that you're applying the, the discretionary funds appropriately so that you can achieve what you're trying to achieve from a strategy perspective. That makes sense. Um, I like to switch the topic a little bit. Um, when I think about starting with all this, I'm thinking about, okay, who needs to be involved in that? You know, um, what are, not only when you get started, but also when you operate it after you've stood it up, but who are the people you need to convince? What are the roles that you have to fill uh, in that organization? And, and what is their contribution to it? Yeah, so I think you have to start with leadership because if you're taking on something like this and if you're, um, you're going to implement it to the, the fullest of extent of what I lay out, I think you have it to start with whoever the senior most person is that is driving the transformation agenda. That could be head of transformation. That could be your COO, your CIO, somebody yeah. of that title. I think it's important that they understand the vision under like completely. Think through you know the different use cases that I mentioned. You know what is it the what is the 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 biggest pain point or opportunity within your organization, and how am I going to apply it so that I could deliver benefit in this thing? So that's first, but then. You know, once that 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 leader of the transformation is on board, you need to stand up a process COO or a process COE. So you need a head of your process COE that really understands this vision, gets it, has passion. There's a lot of uh, rigor that has to be stood up in these processes to maintain that data, to maintain these models. So somebody with that um, that drive is is needed. And then you have to build out your team. And within your COO team. There's a couple different parts. There's your modeling team. So you have your a team that will do create your process inventory, create your mm-hmm. process models. And then there's another team that I call the, the control tower. So they do all your governance. They maintain your standards. They maintain your tool and your infrastructure. Uh, and they make sure everything is, is of high quality. So that's useful for all the, 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 the customers of the use cases that you design within it. And then there's a... Within the business, there's one other role that I think is very critical, which is that of the process owner. So yeah. I know that's a, that's a term that's thrown all around a lot these days. A dangerous term for some. They really it's, hate it's a, it. It's <sighs> a dangerous term. But with this approach, you get to a very discreet named process owner for a very, you know, for a very discreet named process. And now now if you think about their responsibility for it is mainly within this concept is to make sure that 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 the models that are created and the data that's associated is accurate. There, because it's you're taking this from an organizational hierarchy perspective, their responsibility for maintaining the performance of each individual process does not change. That should have been there all along. All this framework does is clarify that with some very strict, very clean definitions for what they're responsible for. Mm, interesting. I, I've actually seen a, a breakdown of that in a couple of places where they've put a duality to the role, as in there's a there's somebody who's accountable for process performance, but there is also somebody who kind of reports to them or is or is a is a partner in crime, if you will, a sidekick, who is responsible for the accuracy of the data. So we think about a data steward and a process owner. And, a, and sometimes if the organization's not big enough, they'll have you know, 
one person fills both roles. But to what you're making the case for, it sounds like here, is to allocate that data stewardship to your process owner so that yep. you have one mind doing all of the things around a single process. For sure. And, and in your example, they, they could delegate that. But at the end of the day, I want to go to that process owner and say, is this accurate? And they should they should know whether that's accurate or not. Well, there's accountability, right? That's something they're still accountable. We, we, that's we, right. We, we that. <laughs> yeah, what I've seen in the past are organizations where the dedicated process owner had some difficulties in taking on that role and doing that role because they came with their organizational silo background. You know, oh yeah, I'm whatever. I'm in the project management group and I'm obviously the, the process owner for project man, for projects here in this organization. So I look at my type of projects and everybody has to do it the same and ignoring that there are other parts in the organization that do projects as well, which might be significantly different than what he has a background from and different concepts and whatnot. And I, I think you could see that all the time, you know, when you think about um, financial processes, you know, everybody in the organization spends money at some point in time and, and people don't understand that they, in the moment that take money in their hands, they have a financial role uh, that they perform. <laughs> um, so the process owners, they come with the same bias based on their um, organizational origin, if you will. How do you overcome that? So I, I think it's very important that the process owner really, you're just asking them for what they do. There could be other teams doing similar things, but I just want to know what, what you do. And through this approach, we'll go to the other teams and we'll understand what they do as well. And then you'll have teams that come in that will want to optimize the operating environment. And that's where they'll, they'll want to take, you know, if, I'm, if I get five teams doing your financial processes, I want to look at that and say, what are they doing the same? What are they doing the, uh, that's different? What resources are being used different? And how can I optimize that environment? Maybe it's, maybe it's taking those teams and creating a, a shared service center where it's just one group that does it all. Maybe it's simplifying technology. Maybe it's standardizing processes. But there's got to be a team that looks kind of above those five that's looking for the efficiencies that could be designed into this. I hope, hopefully that answers your question. Partially. Partially. So I, it, it answers, obviously, the, the, the larger, the macro setup. You know, I was aiming more towards uh, the change of the attitude of the individual. Because on the one hand side, you empower a process owner to say, hey, you're responsible for this type of process in the whole organization. But on the other hand, uh, they also might feel whatever deficiencies, you know, I can't do this. I I just did this type of project. What do I know what the other guys do? You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. so how do you overcome that that mental, that that internal challenge? And how do you empower yeah that individual that plays the role of the process owner. Yeah. So, and, and maybe just take a step back on terminology. So I view almost the capability owner, if I could, if I could say that, because in, in what I was describing before, you'll have a capability model that says, you know, do financial process, but you could have five groups that do that financial process. Mm -hmm. So you want to identify a capability owner that can, and, and I think it fills a role that I mentioned. They want to look across and look for inefficiencies yes. and how can they design a better environment. Now, the trick is going to be, because it's always a bit of a negotiation, is you don't necessarily have full ownership over those if you're a, a capability owner. So you're going to have to negotiate and, and come up with a design and vision and then get people that control the budget 
for those individual teams to get on board. So that's going to take a little bit of work from their side. Um, but it's good to have that overseer that's that's coming up with the recommendations across all the different organizational groups. Yeah, and I can imagine that that this solves 90x percent of all potential conflicts. I'm just wondering, yeah. what about those single-digit percentage where somebody just has to make the call? Right. Yeah. I think that's the that's the the bigger challenge, you know, because just saying, okay, we're gonna push it up, 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 you know, then then you don't get an answer, you know, because it's just yeah. one of the seven million other requests that someone has. And and Mr. Bigwig just doesn't have time or interest on that. Yeah. I think it comes down to I mentioned negotiations already. There is a bit of escalation. And if it is a if it's a big squeaky wheel problem, then yeah, it's Uh, while leadership may not want to get involved, if the if the the problem is big and hairy enough, then it's kind of their role to to drive the change. Agreed. Yeah, I I, I want to loop back a little bit on something you said earlier because it's something that I I think about a lot. A couple of my clients do this differently with sort of different results. You mentioned bringing a center of excellence together to give sort of this this shared service that offers a bunch of things. I mean, we, we talk about center of excellence a lot here, whether it talks about methodology, center of excellence, whether it talks about tool practices and the end capabilities. I've seen a couple of clients do it different ways, some of which deploy sort of centers of excellence in the lines of business. So each of your group will have their modeling experts and they'll be working on things. And yeah, there'll be some sort of council of people to standardize in some capacity, usually in IT. Uh, longer conversation about that, but um, the the deployment of these these process experts is at the line of business level, versus some organizations that are able to to centralize that, who have very senior level executive support, who can really stand that up as a shared service and maintain it and do it independent of projects. I mean, where do you see each having their own advantages, and what have you seen really successful, or have you seen examples of both being successful? So it really, it depends on how you define success and what you're trying to achieve. If I have two different business units that are creating models that are of different standards, maybe one's doing BPMN 2.0 and one's doing EPC, and I can't understand how those two um, uh, intersect with each other, like one, because, you know, processes hand off all the time. So right. end event for one process could be a beginning event for another process. Of course. But if they're built for different, completely different standards, different naming conventions, different everything, then I can't, I can't do the vision of what I kind of describe in the book because it's apples and oranges. So I, right. I really think, and it depends on, you know, what, you know, if, if you're, if you're transformation enterprise wide, or if it's for the U S organization or, or, or where, what you're trying to do, I think you need to really think about a process center of excellence for that scope of the transformation so that you could build a repository. And I should look at a, a process from different parts of the group and they should all exactly look the same. So if you want that as a goal, you need a COE to, to build standards, to build quality routines with rigorous processes as part of that so that you do have that, that common um, quality across Now, one thing that, that can be different is you could have your process modeling teams um, in a, um, uh, a franchise uh, type world. So, you know, you could have business A does has their own process modelings and business B, as long as they both adhere to your common standards. And then when they get into the repository, they fit together well. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, so everyone's filet fish is the same filet fish I I see yeah. what you're doing here. The franchise that's what, you know, model. That's that's why you like McDonald's. You <laughs> could go to a McDonald's in Indiana or South Dakota. A Big Mac is a Big Mac. Exactly. Well, I happen to love the filet, but the question here is, <laughs> I'm, 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 listen, that's, that's what I grew <laughs> up with. mixed metaphors on you, sorry. <laughs> ah, no, no, it's okay. It's, it, that's what I was going for. The, the, tr- the truth is here that there still has to be some sort of executive support to enforce yes. a standard. I, I hope in my heart of hearts that people are doing things for the right reason, that they're all good actors, that they're trying to be collaborative, that they believe in a collective shared goal of excellence in process for the organization, excellence in delivery to customer value and growth. Yes. However, politics and human nature often get in the way of that, which means that's why we need mandates and things like that. That's why we need to have an executive sponsor to help establish this language and say that it's going to be the way we're going to do things or you're you're not going to be part of that conversation as, as tacit a threat that is. One of the ways I've seen that happen, and I, I, I cringed at it earlier, but it is kind of true, is standardization through IT. Because if IT controls your process modeling tool, as much as I'd prefer that not to be the case, because they're kind of an independent body, they're the UN of BUs. And everybody's got to go there because that's where the meeting hall is. I don't hate that, but I don't love it. So talk about your interactions with IT when you talk about the process inventory framework. How do you work in concert with them and how do they maybe sometimes stand in the way? So and I've, asked, I've been asked this question before. If you're going to create a process COE, where does it live? And, and I'll say I've seen kind of three, maybe four possibilities. So one is IT, obviously, within your maybe your enterprise architecture function. Another is within your transformation program, which makes sense. But your transformation program is has a defined t- uh, life lifetime, so it will eventually fold at some point. Um, another is your COO, which I think makes the most sense. And then I've I've seen it within the risk organization. So my problem with um, technology is. I mean, it comes down to languages. Technologists speak in the language of technology. And, you know, it doesn't come first and foremost to think about what business processes happen and who the process owners. It's just not a natural fit. I don't think it, I don't think, I think it can be successful there. I just think that something like a COO, chief operating officer, makes the most sense because the the role of the COO is to truly understand how everything operates and make sure that there is excellence and there's a lot of de- there's a lot of different moving parts within operating an organization obviously technology being a big one but there's things like risk management and how you manage your data and vendor management and strategy and the change process that I could go on and on there, there's there's a bunch I, I just think the technologist may not think about those as being priorities um, you know because that's not that's not what they're motivated by yeah I don't know I I think this is a and, and maybe I'm, I don't know, off topic. I think this is a side topic. You know, what's the quality of our process models? Who cares, right? Of course, I understand that should be comparable and on all that type of stuff, you know, understandable and whatnot. I think the bigger problem is when we look at the content, you know, when you when you actually work on it. And you mentioned 
ch change management, you know, transformations. Oh yeah, now we have to make the big decision, technology decision. You know, what's our integration platform, or do we go with ERP system one or two, and what part of it do we adapt to our organization and, and all those things. So compared to these questions, the question of, oh, are we using BPMN or EPC are not important, you know, but I think it's important to find on a content perspective, an agreement, right? And you, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, oh yeah, there's some negotiation there. Um, but that to me is, I think, the biggest problem that you have to solve because people have a self-interest, you know, this is my hobby project. I want to see this being realized and then put all the, the stuff on my uniform, you know, the silver badges that I implemented, whatever, right? And and if you have that silly idea, Mike, I can't do it. So I will fight you tooth and nails, right? So I, I think that those are the, the interesting questions. I mean, I think at the end of the day, we could talk about quality with EPC, BPN, like all that doesn't matter. Yeah. At the end of the day, if you're asking people to use this, they've got to look at it and say, this represents my business. Yeah, agreed. This is accurate and this is complete. And and then I could do requirements off it. I could do my risk assessments off it. I could do technology designs off it. But at the end of the day, like it just has to reflect because once you put that in front of them and they say, I don't know what this is, this isn't my business, then everything just falls apart. And that's why you need a process CUE. That's why you need rigor. That's why you need standards. Mm -hmm. Like all this, and obviously it's got to be driven with strong leadership, but, but, some of the mechanics of doing this are, are really important. Yeah, and and uh, I'm looking at the little clock that's ticking and, and we're getting up to an hour of our conversation. Um, maybe to, to close this topic out, what would be, you mentioned a couple of those items already, so maybe you, you just repeat them for better memorability, but what would be your tips and tricks to create and maintain that process inventory, you know, and because I can imagine it, it grows into hundreds, if not thousands of individual diagrams, you know, and, and how do you wrangle the beast? Yeah. So I, I think it starts with, and this is probably repeating some of the stuff I said before, but I think you need to start with um, your, your why. So you've got to be very clear on why you're doing it, what value you bring into the organization, um, what problems you're solving, et cetera. Uh, the second is you do need um, a process COE. Uh, you do need, and I lay out in the book all the different processes that, that that's responsible for, roles and responsibilities, uh, et cetera. But you need to, to go to that question is when your stakeholders look at this, they need to say that this is accurate and complete and high quality. And you need an organization that is going to maintain that. Um, and then I think third, and this goes to the why, is just think through what the use cases you're going to deploy this to. Um, and, and then once you get those stakeholders and use use cases kind of integrated, then I think this becomes a self-fulfilling um, thing to maintain because not only is it just the process team saying, hey, you've got to make sure this is good quality and you've got to reattest to it. Now it's the other teams that are dependent on delivering the value that they're going to deliver, like the risk team or the change team, et cetera, that now have a voice saying, you need to make sure that this is accurate and complete. I love it. And we're giving voice to folks across the organization to contribute together to a collective goal of excellence. And that's fantastic. And I want to turn it back to our audience. <laughs> We've heard some fantastic ideas, some really great thought leadership from, from Mike this whole time. But let's turn it back to your organization and your practices and goals. How are you planning on achieving your business outcomes collectively and within your individual groups? What do you have right now? What do you need in order to understand things? 
And for instance, where can a process inventory framework help give you that structure, that collaboration, that space within which you have the capacity to succeed and excel in process excellence? We'll leave you for a moment and come back with our final thoughts and conclusions for the episode. last segment of the show and i say it more than i admit to say it you know there's too much to revisit to give you a little summary so I, i'd like to point you to the show notes uh, for all that but michael it was a very interesting conversation with you and i i'm uh, convinced that you um brought over not only brought over your point but you also convinced uh, a couple of, of listeners to rethink how do they approach the topic of a process inventory in the context of uh, operational excellence and transformation and change management and risk management and all those use cases that you mentioned before. But now I'm curious, how do I get into contact with, with that interesting person who I heard has written a book uh, lately? <laughs> So, hey, uh, Jay and Roland, thank you again for this opportunity. It's uh, it's been a great discussion, and sure. hopefully, we can do more of it at some point. Um, so, so three things in closing. I think uh, first, obviously, buy the book. Um, I do it. it <laughs> it's at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, anywhere where you buy books online. And you know, I'll, I'll say this: I think it's, and, and hopefully, this came through in the, the, the discussion, but. This represents, I think, a paradigm shift in thinking about process. It's not just how we could look and uh, um, make processes better, which is obviously important, but how do we use process as the backbone for how we run our organizations and drive transformation operational excellence? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think the your audience would be disappointed at all. Um, second, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, so Michael Schenk, and love to hear your thoughts, questions about this topic and um, absolutely happy to connect with any other process experts and and just have a, a great dialogue. Uh, third, uh, go to processinventory.com. I mentioned I do consulting services and am rolling out some training on this topic. Uh, so connect with me there uh, and look forward to uh, more content as well. Well, you've created some amazing content with us today, my friend. <laughs> and thank you so much. And in fact, All the things that Mike has mentioned here are things you'll find in the show notes, which is a pitch for our thing, whatsyourbaseline.com. And of course, there's great links there for this show and all of our previous shows. You can go back and watch our archive of deep dives into some really exciting topics for process and architecture across the spectrum of industries and a a whole bunch of different types of specialists like uh, disciplines that you can find more information about but you can also provide information back to us so please take the time to leave us some feedback send us a message on anchor or give us a comment on linkedin we love seeing people interact with a lot of our posts something that we can give you some more information on and hopefully direct you to the folks you've heard today for more information but for this episode specifically you'll find the information at whatsyourbaseline.com episode 59 
Well, until next time, friends, I've been J.M. Erlinson. I'm Michael Schenk. And my name is Roland Volt. And we will see you in the next one. <laughs>